Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Hello, everybody, and happy Sunday. It's nice to be in your home in video form once again. Um, I was uh, praying about what I wanted to talk about today, and um, I felt like talking a little bit about spiritual warfare. Now, uh, this is one of those topics that is uh, super, super, super well-worn, especially in our circles, and so... Uh, you know, some of you might have known that I recently just put out a book about spiritual warfare called uh, Indestructible. And when I was when I was uh, writing that book, or really preparing to write that book, I I was really feeling um, a lot of tension because I didn't really want to write a, a spiritual warfare book. Uh, if you guys have ever heard me talk at all, you know that I much prefer to focus on what God's doing, uh, uh, on his plans, on his purposes, and how we can partner with those. And so, you know, I figured if I had to write a book about uh, spiritual warfare, it would be, I need to talk about the stuff that the enemy's doing way more than I would like. Um, but over over the years, I've kind of felt the Lord uh, c- correct me a little bit in that even though obviously I think it is the most important thing that we focus on him, his purposes, and what he's doing, there can be benefit in understanding what the enemy tries to do so that we can make sure that we're focusing on what God's doing, which is kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, so first, I want to read a scripture, super familiar one, one of the, one of the classics, if you will, uh, as far as spiritual warfare goes. Uh, this is Ephesians 6, uh, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We do not fight against flesh and blood. Now, first of all, I want to take just a moment to lay down a a little bit of a framework. And I know most of you are people who have uh, probably heard me speak a fair amount before, but if you haven't... uh, uh, a little bit of backfill to catch you up. A uh, big part of my testimony is that for as long as I can remember, I've seen uh, angels, demons, and other spiritual things uh, not so differently than I would be seeing you if you were in this room right now. Um, and so again, a, a big part of my life has been seeing what's going on in the spirit, seeing the demonic and the angelic and how these things kind of interact. And I am... Um, I wanted to lay down a little bit of uh, groundwork before we dive into what I want to talk about today, just so that we kind of make sure that we have the right framework for what's going on. When we're talking about spiritual warfare, I think it's important, I know most of you probably already think this way, but it's a good reminder. You know, we're talking about spiritual warfare, uh, God and Satan, God and the enemy are not equal opposites. It's, it's not like God has a hundred soldiers and the devil has a hundred soldiers and, you know, hopefully they're going to win, you know, not equal opposites. They are also not disproportionate forces. It's not like, uh, you know, God has a hundred soldiers and the devil has 10. No, it's it, God's authority, God's power, God's ability to, to defeat the enemy is incomparable. It is not apples and oranges. It is apples and motorcycles. It is, it is incomparable things that are completely and totally different. Now, I love the way the Bible talks about it. Even in this scripture, it, there's kind of a little allusion to it is so frequently the um, Bible uses when talking about spiritual warfare, the, the metaphor of 
light and dark. You know, light representing God, his purposes, his plans, his people. Darkness representing the, the enemy's plans, purposes, and ideas, and sin, and things like that. Now, light and dark are also not equal opposites. It's not a battle between light and dark. In fact, light does not have to fight to defeat darkness. Darkness is nothing but the absence of light. And this is really, really important for us to understand. You know, if we uh, turned all these studio lights off, and if it happened to be night, this metaphor is falling apart quickly, but let's just say that, you know, if we switched the lights back on, it, the darkness wouldn't like slowly creep away. It wouldn't, you know, slowly recede back into the shadows. The very moment that we engaged the lights, the darkness would be gone, that very, very moment. It, it doesn't scrub away like a stain. It doesn't slowly blow away like, uh, like, like leaves with a leaf blower. It is instantly gone the moment that light shows up. Yet, I think that probably many of us have had experiences where it feels like it's a battle, where it feels like light is trying to overcome darkness and you know, things of, of that nature. But... So, so then, what, what is the battle? If light instantly wins the moment it shows up, then what is the battle? Well, I, I would like to suggest that the battle is not whether good will triumph over evil. It's that whether we are walking through our lives with the lights on or the lights off. That is what the battle is. Are we walking through life with the lights on or the lights off? Um... In, in the years that I've seen angels and demons around people, the, if I were to put it real simply, is the number one thing that the enemy is trying to do is not necessarily trying to get you to do something bad or to um, get you to not believe in God. I'm, I'm sure he'd love to do all those things, of course. Steal, kill, destroy. It's pretty much his thing. Um, the way that the enemy tries to do what he does is he tries to get you to think the way that he does. He tries to get you to think like he does. And I want to share just a couple of stories to help illustrate this, this point for just a moment. Um, so the first one is a simple one. I've shared it a few times. Maybe you've heard this one before. But I, I had this guy I knew at my, at my old church who... Um, his whole life, he had struggled with substance abuse, drugs, alcohol, and kind of everything else in between. It was just a real struggle for his, his whole teenage life and into his young adult life. And you know, as, as time went on, uh, a lot of the people that he did all of his uh, substance abuse with either either went to jail or ended up dying, and just kind of he ran out of people who were supporting that habit, if you want to look at it that way. And even though he had been in and out of rehab for years and years and years, he slowly started eliminating all of these, these addictions, um, all of them except for alcohol. He kind of still was really stuck on, on alcohol, and he'd, he'd just go through these loops where everything would be totally fine for two months, three months maybe, and then he would just go on this really bad, really scary bender where, where he would... Uh, put himself at risk. It would be very scary for everyone who cared about cared about him. And the most recent of of these events had caused him to lose his driver's license and spend a short time in jail because of driving under the influence. So I, I saw this guy at church one day, and as I was standing there, I you know was talking to him, asking him how he's doing. And he's kind of you know downtrodden, obviously just embarrassed. You can see it on his face. And um, I look and I see this demon standing next to him. 
And as we're talking, you know, he starts saying just these, um, these self-deprecating sort of, sort of uh, sentences about himself, saying like, you know, uh, stupid's got to learn at some point, you know, like, uh, I'm never going to do anything that dumb again. You know, th- these kinds of phrases that, that are um, just, just not quite healthy and not quite right. And every time he says one of these phrases, this demon that's standing next to him uh, is holding this bucket and every time he says one of these phrases, it dumps this bucket over his head, and this thick, black, oily liquid just uh, pours all over my friend's head. And every phrase, one after the other, just starts dumping this bucket until he's just completely covered in this oily, uh, disgusting, tar-like stuff. And as I looked at this, this tar, in, in the reflection of it, I could see this exaggerated, kind of warped picture of my friend. I saw him being arrested. I saw him kind of cavorting around in a you know, drunken sort of way. But all of it was exaggerated. All of it made him look really, really stupid. You know, and I don't like using words like that to describe people when I can. But th- that was what the feeling of this, this picture was. And I could just see it was, it was this, you know, uh, it, just this exaggerated and offensive picture of him. Now, unfortunately, I knew exactly what it was because it's something that I had seen quite a lot of. I knew that this demon was dumping shame on onto him, and after it just kept on happening, I kept hearing these little phrases come out. Finally, I just said, "Stop! <laughs> Please stop talking about yourself that way. That's that's not true." And he, you know, just kind of oh, okay, you know, and moved on. Well, a few weeks went by, and I saw him again, and I saw that same demon following him around. And as uh, he was talking, I saw this, this demon uh, caressing his face with one hand, and then with the other hand, it was pulling at all these little cuts and bruises that were all over him on his face and on his, on his chest. Now, when I see those kinds of wounds, those represent the, the hurts that we get through day-to-day life, whether it be someone you know, being harsh to us or, or some of the um, bigger things that can happen too, whether it's childhood trauma or pain from our past. These can be small wounds or big wounds. And anyway, this, this demon was pulling open these wounds so they started to bleed, just kind of you know, popping them open. And as it was tugging at these wounds, the hand that was caressing him uh, reached behind his head and produced this brown bottle and just kind of shook it gently in front of his face. And immediately I knew this, this demon was trying to tempt him to medicate his pain that he was experiencing with alcohol. Well, the, the next time I saw the, this guy, he was, um, showed up to church drunk and you know, pretty clearly drunk. And I looked at him and the second that we made eye contact, immediately that same demon reached up, pulled out a big bucket of that shame and just dumped it on his head. Um, and I, I like sharing this story, even though it's a sad story, for two reasons. One, it's a story I've seen quite a lot, this, this cycle of shame, this cycle of, of, of just being told that when you, you are defined by your mistakes, you are defined by your failings, and they are, they are building a negative identity for you. And two, I, I think it also kind of um, almost calls out a righteous anger out of us because the very same demon that was telling him how stupid, how pathetic, how, how much of a failure he was is the very same demon that was tempting him to do the, the very thing that had caused him so much shame. And it's, it's, it's a good reminder, again, that the enemy doesn't really care what you do. He doesn't care if you uh, fall to this thing or that thing or, or whatever else. He just wants you disconnected from God. That's 
really all that he's trying to do. Steal, kill, destroy, whatever he can get. Um, now, it's, it's important that we recognize that the enemy is trying to do this stuff. He's trying to get us to think about ourselves a certain way. That he's trying to get us to think about other people a certain way. And I think that's why this, this scripture is so important. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We, we, and I, I do want to, you know, this is obviously something that's good in, in general principle. But it is something that I want to address in the kind of uh, scenario that we're in right now. Um, and it's, it's heightened right now because of all the stuff that's going on with the coronavirus, because there are so many different opinions about how best to handle a situation like this, what the right thing is to do, what the wrong thing is to do on the big scale, on the small scale, and everywhere in between. Um, but honestly, despite the circumstances that we're in right now, it's been my observation, and I don't think it's a very clever one, I think probably all of you have noticed as well, that we're kind of in the age of being tempted to fight against flesh and blood. It, you can get on your, your phone and fight against flesh and blood really fast, like really fast. I can, I can conduct a, a, an emotional war with this thing on thousands of fronts simultaneously. Uh, my, my capacity for fighting against flesh and blood is massive. And I want us to be aware of that so that we don't get tricked into fighting against flesh and blood for two reasons. One, because it makes us not focus on the actual battle. And two, I think it tends to lead to even greater harm. Um, I want to share a little historical story. You guys know I am a bit of a fan of history, and this one happens to uh, coincide with history and literature, so that's a win-win for me. Um, so most of you are probably uh, at least at least passingly familiar with the uh, American writer uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Wrote The Raven, The Telltale Heart, and uh, a lot of kind of spooky stuff like that. But it's you know very uh, famous uh, literary a person from liter literary history. That's the way to say that. Um, and uh, I just want to tell you a little bit story about uh, it came from his life. And it's kind of a simplified version of it, but it does kind of address an issue. So so Edgar Allan Poe uh, Poe was um, we'll call it frenemies, uh, with this guy named Rufus Griswold. They were both writers of the time, and they early on kind of had this, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a playful rivalry, but it definitely was just kind of a light back and forth, little jab at your writing, little jab at your projects, little, little jab at your magazine that you work at, you know, a little jab at your poetry, just kind of back and forth sort of thing. Um, and I'm not, I don't have time, honestly, to get into every single little detail of this. It's kind of fun to read about if you want to. But uh, one of the big kind of swings and things started to escalate when, when Griswold was putting together this, this collection of uh, American poetry. And he was putting this book together, and he went to Ed, Edgar Allan Poe and said, Hey, you know, um, you know, I know we've kind of had this little thing going on, but let's, uh, I would love for you to contribute some poetry to this book. And at the time, you know, uh, Poe was working at this magazine. He was also saying, Hey, maybe you could write a review about this book when it comes out. And he thought, Oh, great, you know. Get, I'll get my poetry in this thing, and I'll be able to promote it myself by writing this review about this book, and that'll be great. And so Poe wrote the poems, submitted them to the guy, and then finally went and picked up this book after it was done, flipped through it, and man, couldn't find any of his poems until he realized that there were um, over 50 poems of some authors in there, and there were only three of his poems in the very back of the book. 
Well, Poe was really, really upset about this, super offended, really angry, and you know, rah. And so the guy came back and said, hey, you know, I, that book's out. Do you want to write a review for it? And he's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'm going to write a review right now. And wrote this kind of scathing review of, of the book. And Griswold came back to him and said, hey, I, you know, I put you in this book. I paid you to write this review. Why are you being so mean? And you know, Poe was just kind of rude back, and they wrote all these bad things about each other, and you can actually kind of follow, if you want to, these escalating articles they'd write against each other in one another's um, uh, places that they worked and everything, and just kind of escalated, escalated, escalated. And, you know, Poe was a really poor guy, Edgar Allan Poe. He didn't, didn't have a whole lot of success during his lifetime, is really just kind of living on a shoestring. And... Um, Anyway, flash forward a little bit, and Griswold uh, go a- goes ahead and <laughs> meets with the head of the magazine that Poe works at, Edgar Allan Poe works at, and a uh, short version of the story, he takes Edgar Allan Poe's job, uh, negotiates higher pay than Poe was getting uh, when he was working there, and Poe gets fired, is super broke. Um, was already struggling with alcohol, but ended up going a little bit off the deep end, started dabbling in drugs, and was found crazed on the street, uh, kind of flipping out, was brought to a hospital, and then died, um, which is kind of sad. Uh, you know. And of course, Griswold, being a, a bit of a meanie, um, is the Christian way to put it, uh, wrote this uh, scathing uh, uh, mini biography for for his for Poe's funeral and was just rude and talking about how much of a jerk this guy was. Started making fun of him in articles later. Ironically, people started getting more interested in Poe because of like, oh, this guy went crazy and and died. And wow, some of these poems are kind of interesting. And ironically, he became a important part of American literature uh, even to this day. And uh, Griswold is not very well remembered for his works and ended up. Uh, so the story goes, uh, dying some years later of uh, tuberculosis and died with a picture of Poe, in uh, Edgar Allan Poe, in his bedroom. Um, now, that's a depressing story, so you're welcome. Um, but it, uh, I, I'm sure that as I was telling that story, you could probably think of a hundred other stories that are kind of like that. You could probably think of maybe a dozen or 20 stories from your own life that had something like that, where there was disconnect, where there was disagreement, where there was uh, frustration handed back and forth, misunderstanding, or even dislike, as, as was exemplified in this story. Um, and our, our history is full of stories. Our fiction is full of stories of what happens when we fight against flesh and blood, when we are tempted to make our battles against people rather than against spiritual realities, against things that are uh, dark, that are, uh, that are the absence of light. It destroys us on the inside. It, Poe was a bitter and sad man who died addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, and unfortunately, experienced, uh, reaped very little benefit of the success that he experienced after his, after his death. Um, self-destruction is the natural result of fighting against flesh and blood because it is misaligning us with the heart and intention of God. 
And I, I want to be very careful here because there are, and, and I know I talked a little bit about coronavirus situations and things. I'm not being too specific about which side of what I'm talking about because I think it's important in these things that we are guided not by the details necessarily of what's going on, but by the principles and the nature of our Heavenly Father, that those are what are guiding us. And I'm not saying that the details are unimportant. What I'm saying is being guided by his nature is the most important, if that makes sense. Um, Another way, uh, another scripture that I think helps address this is another one of the most famous scriptures about spiritual warfare. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. It says, The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It, it, it's important to know that if we can conquer within ourselves the battle between light and dark, not between doing good things and doing bad things, but by making sure that we have the lights on, that's what equips us to be the light of the world. When we take our own thoughts captive, not, not just the bad thoughts, take all of our thoughts captive and submit them to Christ, then we learn how to make sure that the lights are turned on. The, uh, the, the Passion Translation puts it a, a really fun way. I'm going to switch over to that real quick via my uh, <laughs> weapon of mass destruction, weapon of mass emotional destruction anyway. <laughs> all right, so this is the, this is the uh, Passion Translation of 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, they, they kind of merged some of the verses here, so this is like three and four down to five. So, For although we live in the natural realm, we don't wage a military campaign employing human weapons, using manipulation to achieve our aims. Instead, our spiritual weapons are energized with divine power to effectively dismantle the defenses behind which people hide. We can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God and break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defiance of the true knowledge of God. We capture, like prisoners of war, every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the Anointed One. If if you want to be effective in the areas where you see there, you see a need for change in the world, then take every thought captive. That will make you an effective warrior, an effective beacon of light. When we take personal responsibility with what is going on in here first, it equips us to be the answer. The, the, the temptation is to fight against flesh and blood, which is to say, why is that person doing that? And I, again, I'm specifically and intentionally not saying who I'm talking about because I'm not talking about anyone. My personal battles would be of, with, I, I could list names for my personal areas, but I need you to list what those names are for yourself. What are the places where you're, t- why won't this person do that? Why won't this change that? Why won't this system change that way? It talks about it. its powers and principalities and authorities, things of this earth, things in the air. If we want to overcome those things, we, we can. We actually have, we don't have the power to control other people, but we do have the power to control ourselves and take every thought captive, submit it to Christ, and let him teach us how to be a light, how to be a beacon of light. And 
you know, that's the beautiful thing is that is the very thing we are called to do. You know, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You are called to shine. You are called to reveal his glory before all men and to, and to call them into reconciliation with Christ. But it starts with personal transformation. And so I would encourage you, it is not wrong to be bothered by injustices or things that are not going according to God's kingdom. Jesus was bothered by that a lot, (laughs) a a lot. But the only way that we can be effective in addressing those things, instead of getting on here and waging a a flesh-on-flesh battle or uh, just throwing our energy into the wind, is by letting ourselves, training ourselves to, to take every thought captive and be transformed. And I'll tell you right now, this is, uh, every time I've done this intentionally, where I stop and say, okay, God, I have really strong opinions about X, whatever that thing is. What do you think about it? I've noticed, as, even though I'm a person who this is my job, to, it's part of my job to have a relationship with God, um, I, I still struggle to shut my internal voice up, my, my very justified and excited opinion that wants to jump out, to, to not ignore, deny it, or suppress it, but set it to the side and say, Lord, what do you have to say? What do you have to say about this? And I've throughout my entire life, I've been amazed by the way that he has led me, by the things that he has to say, by the way that he guides us, by the way that he will add nuance that I would have never been able to see myself so that I can actually know how to engage, not, not dump my energy in the wrong place and in a place that I can't be effective and also not wage a war against flesh and blood and, and dump all my energy that actually ends up in a place that harms and hurts someone else but instead stand as a beacon of light. And again, I'm far from perfect at this at at all, but it's a journey that's worth engaging in. I would encourage all of you to do it. And, you know, and I want to encourage you, whether it's on the big scale, whether if you're frustrated with with big things that are going on, or you're looking at something very personal, like the story I shared with my friend, where there is an area that you're dealing with shame, where there is a thought pattern and belief system that, that if there's an area of life that you consistently see failure, what you would call failure, submit your thought process about that to the king. <laughs> submit that, your thought process, your opinion about yourself to the king. Submit your thought process and your opinion about what's going on in the world, about what's going on in your neighborhood, about what's going on in your church, what, whatever else. Submit that process to the king. You might be 100% right about the things that need to change, but until we are, have anointed those thoughts with his light, they are not going to be the, the pure expression of his nature that they would be otherwise. And so let me just pray for you guys to, to wrap up. Um, I, I feel like maybe even some of you were feeling just this energy kind of rise up. I feel like there was kind of two categories. There was people who were maybe just feeling, have maybe been feeling a little bit apathetic. Uh, what do I do with my life? What direction do I go? Uh, or what do I do in the midst of all this weird chain that's going on with coronavirus stuff and everything? And then there's people on the other end that have felt like a, like a bull in a cage, like, ah, I got to get out of here. What do I got to do? You know, just kind of, a, I need to go punch something or build something or something, you know. I felt like both of you, there was this alignment that God was, both of these kinds of people, that God is pulling this alignment to center 
of giving you direct guidance of where to point that energy and how to point it there. And for the others, giving direction, giving purpose, giving, giving structure to that, that actually is motivating. And so if that, if that, if you kind of, if either that kind of clicked with you, wherever you're at right now, just go ahead and stand up and put your hands out in front of you. I just, I just release this guiding hand of the Holy Spirit that, that reveals God's heart, reveals his intent, reveals what he's inviting us to. I just break off any attack of the enemy, any area where we have forgotten to turn the lights on. We have forgotten to turn the lights on ourselves, where we jump to a conclusion. We, we repent if we jump to a conclusion about what you want us to do, Lord. And, and we don't receive any shame about that. Peter did it all the time. Peter said, let's build a temple. Let me chop this dude's ear off. This is surely your intention, Lord. It's, we, we all make presumptions sometimes about the way God wants to manifest his will. So if we are having a moment where we're realizing that we were presumptuous about that, Lord, we repent and we adjust ourselves to be led by you. Lord, if we were being apathetic, if we were feeling paralyzed, if we were feeling just kind of like we want to retreat, like we want to back up, like we want to kind of turtle up and, and maybe disconnect or, or, or hide away from things, Lord, we repent from not, for not following your mandate to arise and shine, to be a city on a hill that is not hidden. And Lord, we, are, we submit ourselves to your guidance, to your will, so that you will show us how and where we are to go, Lord. And I just, again, release that with that will, be, will come the motivation and the courage because it is not just a character thing that we, do, that we generate in ourselves. It is a gift from heaven. I just release that right now in Jesus' name. And this last thing is kind of a sidebar is I just release a, to anyone who is feeling a hunger for the comforter. I just release the comforter to you right now. I, I, if there has been a, a mindset, a belief system, or a thought pattern that has been plugging the place where the Holy Spirit was wanting to land in your life, I just identify and wipe those away right now in Jesus' name. And I invite the comforter to come upon you, that you would feel the peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is both the, just the, the loving comfort, like a, like a mother or a parent holding you when you're feeling scared, but also is, is full of motivation and drive and true um, deep encouragement. I just release that right now in Jesus' name. All right, guys, we love you a lot, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.